0: have been, and the, the cover of uh, the, the artwork that we even utilized is designed to focus on actually where we were last week when we, cro- we talked about the whole crossing of the Red Sea under the leadership of Moses, Israel being freed from their slavery in Egypt, making their way as a people of promise into a new future, and how so much of that future was connected to that passage to the Red Sea, and that those waters, as it were, became a kind of a baptism of new beginning. And of course, when Israel finally saw the pursuing armies of Pharaoh consumed under the waters of the Red Sea, they realized once and for all that what uh, they had left behind, for generations they had been enslaved as the descendants of of Jacob. And now for the first time, they were not only free, they had been free, but they weren't truly free because they were still being pursued by their past, as it were. The intention of Pharaoh was to capture, to slaughter, and to re-enslave. And then to see them while they were on the precipice of an absolute disaster, be extraordinarily delivered in a way that none of them could have conceived, through the waters, and to watch their enemies consume, the very ones that had come to consume them. It was an astonishing moment for Israel. And in fact, the 15th chapter of Exodus is filled with so much there. Because if you were to read the first 18 verses, it has to do with a song. It was called the Song of Moses and the Deliverance. The people break out in song, and they record that song for the generations. That majority of the, the chapter is, is is filled with song and lyrics and ways of remembering this moment that marks the true beginning of what had begun. It starts a new chapter in their life. No longer are they going to be afraid of what has been because the army and the power of their past has been snapped into, broken, left behind in the waters. Now they move towards a new life. Now, that feeling of euphoria must have been just an amazing thing. Um, Palpable. They, they, they could have felt it in the air, the excitement. Let's read this together. As we come to Exodus 15, verse 19 through 21, it says, When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and charioteers rushed into the sea, the Lord brought the water crashing down on them, but the people of Israel had walked through the middle of the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam, the prophet Aaron's sister, took a tambourine, and she led all the women as they played their tambourines, and they danced. And Miriam sang this song, just a small one. Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. He has hurled both horse and rider into the sea. And so you see the picture of Israel astonished by what God has done as they go from what looked like the worst possible outcome to the best possible outcome. It was truly miraculous. They realized for the first time they were free. It brings to mind the great, you know, the great cry of of, of Martin Luther King, that iconic phrase, free at last, free at last. God Almighty, free at last. Thank Him. This idea of, of Israel being free for the first time. And you know what? There's a lot of connection, by the way, between the, the civil rights movement and, and the freedom. They always identified with the children of Israel and leaving Egypt and the freedom that God brought to His people. It's a special time of freedom and new possibility and beginning. That, so that's the picture we see. Israel realizes their past is left behind. Keep that in mind, because what happens is they sort of, at this point now, begin to make a journey. They celebrate what has happened. They're stunned. Uh, they're overwhelmed by it. And then they begin a journey. Now, remember, we'll just put the map up here. Remember, they, they were told not to go up the Mediterranean coast. You can see the, the landscape today. And again, I just want to give everybody a point of reference. Hopefully, this will be helpful We've been looking at it. You can see the Sinai Peninsula, by the way. See where Egypt is, and you can see we can see where the uh, land of Canaan is. That's where Israel is today. Uh, the peninsula, that triangle, that wedge there, it, with the Gulf of Sinai on one side, the Gulf of Aqaba on the other. You could we can get a picture. We get a picture of it, and we see it. We can see where their journey was, and, and how it re- how it relatively went into the wilderness of Sinai. Now, one of the interesting things about Sinai is that we often think, oh, they went into the desert, and there was an area of their journey that was desert-like. But um, I put this in your handout, this is from a a great scholar named Alfred Alfred And He wrote this about the Sinai Peninsula. I just wanna draw your attention to it very quickly because I think it really does put some things into context that will serve as a helpful backdrop for understanding the geography of what Israel was actually traveling through. Again, these places are real. They're there. They, they can be seen today. Eiderscham writes this. He says, this, this Sinai Peninsula, that wedge-shaped triangle that we just saw, it really consists of three distinct portions. The northern portion is called the wilderness of Tia. It's pebbly. It's high-tabled land, the prevailing color being that of gray limestone. Next comes a broad belt of sandstone and yellow sand, the only one in the desert of the Exodus. To the south of it, to the tip, the triangle, the peninsula, lies the true Sinaitic range. Look at this. It says, The prevailing character of the scenery is that of an irregular mass of mountains thrown together in wild confusion. The highest peak rises to about 9,000 feet. Between these wind what seem and really are torrent beds are where the water has dropped off in the storms, filled and perhaps for a very short time in the winter. But generally, they're quite dry. We call these wadis, and they form the highway system through the wilderness. Here and there, whether either a living spring arises or the torrent has left its marks, or where the hand of man, as it were, cultivating patches far fair and fruitful are found. But but uh, you know, palm trees spring up, even gardens and fields and rich pasture ground, but generally the, the rocky mountainsides are bare of all vegetation, and their bright coloring gives the scenery its peculiar character. Over all of this, unbroken silence prevails, so that the voice is heard in the pure air at extraordinary distances. So again, I'm just going to, put, I'm going to give us an idea. We'll look at some pictures really quickly. Again, to put into context what we just read. Now here's the picture from way up top. You can see the triangle of the Sinai Peninsula. We just kind of move forward here, and we give them to get an idea of the landscape itself. Not just desert land. There's a part of it is, but it's not just deserts and sand dunes. We can see that there's an element of it that is, but a lot of it has to do with this rocky desert wilderness. So where Israel was traveling looked a lot more like this. There were times when you would have an oasis. You would be able to um, have these places where there were water sources. And, of course, this gives a little bit of perspective to it. It's actually quite beautiful in a stark way. And then, of course, this last shot gives us a real great idea of what we mean by the highway system of the wadis. See how they're, like, carved into the mountain ranges? How these passes create a kind of street system and highway system? You see, actually, that shot gives a real sense of what it was like. You can see it crisscrossing and how they would make their way through This particular type of landscape. So, keeping that in mind, come with me back to that 23rd verse, and it says, or 22nd verse, it says, "Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved out into the desert of Shur. That's telling us that they began their journey into the wilderness, and they traveled in the desert for three days without finding any water." And, uh, again, they had traveled from the Red Sea for about three days, and they went over the pub- you know that, that uh, pebbly ground and uh, dry desert wadis. And, and along the way, though, they were uh, most likely troubled because they had found no water. Now, in Egypt, they always had water. Water source and water supply was always there because they were around the Nile. It was just access to water. It was actually a somewhat fertile region. Um, the idea of actually having a day without water was a little bit scary. They probably had a little bit they had, but they no longer had fresh water. They had carried it with them. They were running out of their supplies. It was clear that, you know what, I mean, I hope Moses knows what he's doing because we're running out of water if he hasn't noticed, and this place doesn't look like it has much. And eventually, though, we're told that as, they, as their situation started to become critical, that finally they came to this oasis. And it looked like I can imagine them going, ah, there it is. There's an oasis, right? And it was the oasis that is later going to be known as Mara. And this oasis uh, had water. And in fact, today, biblical archaeologists often think that it was the area that we call Hawara, which was about 33 miles away from the Red Sea. But here's the deal. The water in that particular oasis is undrinkable. It was bitter water. that meant, in contrast to sweet water, which was drinkable, this water, it appears, was contaminated with potassium nitrate. It made it undrinkable, mildly toxic. You couldn't, you, couldn't taste, you couldn't take it. And so here they are, three days without water. Finally, they get to an oasis, and they realize that this water is undrinkable. You've let us out. So the first thing they do is they, they name it. They say, we're going to call this place Mara, which means bitter, because it has bitter water. And then the next thing they did, which was something they were actually very good at, they excelled at this. Uh, verse 24, then the people complained and turned against Moses. And they get mad. But instead of getting, they get mad and they say, what? You did this. You brought us out here. And now we're, we're dying of thirst. And we, you, you finally find an oasis for us. And we can't drink the water. What good is an oasis? You can't drink the water at it. And they said, what are you going to do? We're all going to die out here. And it's your fault. And of course, now remember, this is the same group three days earlier, was dancing around, right, joyfully singing praises to God. About three days, three days, three days. And now they're going, we're all going to die. This is your fault. Life is awful, right? They complain. They're negative. They're, they're as bitter as the waters. Just a bad deal. And they, they, start to, they start to, and they, again, they, they have this unfortunate pattern of doing this too. And it says that Moses did what every real leader should do. He, in his moment, feeling the pressure from everybody and not sure even what he's supposed to do himself, he did what he thought he was supposed to do. He, he cries out to the Lord, it says in verse 25, and he cries out to the Lord for help. Lord, help me. Show me what to do. I don't know what to do. I've led these people here as best as I thought, but the water is undrinkable. And this is what it says happens, that the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Interesting. And the Lord says, basically, whether that wood was on the ground, and he says, pick up that wood and pick it up. The Lord said, take that wood and throw it in, or whether he pulled it off of a tree and broke a branch that was there. And the Lord said, you throw it in the water, and that water that is contaminated will become become drinkable. Now, many people have tried to give a scientific explanation for why that would have happened, in there, but I think we just let the text speak for what it says. It was a bit of a miracle. And God makes that water that was bitter. He turns it into drinkable water. Someone, we were talking about this before service, and someone said, you know what's interesting is that, why would God, you know, um, <laughs> they said, you know, what a difference a tree can make, right? And then why would, God, why would God take, you know, have Moses throw a piece of wood in there? Why not a rock? You know, why didn't he just say, speak to the water, and it'll be better to drink? You know what? A tree? What, what was he doing? Why does God do stuff like this? You know, why a piece of wood? I'll tell you this. It's interesting because ancients, well, I don't even call them ancient, old, commentators of old, they just loved this passage. And one of the reasons they loved it, and, and I still think there's a lot of enthusiasm around it today, is they would always see a connection between the piece of wood that God had Moses throw into the bitter waters to make that drinkable with another piece of wood that a Savior hung upon that brought us also life from the bitterness of death. And they would always, they would always connect it. And the reason they would connect it because they remembered a, a verse in 1 Peter, the second chapter. And we'll just put it up there. You can see it. It says, he, speaking of Jesus, he who himself bore our sins in his own body, look at the phrase, on the tree, having died to to sins, right, that we might live, think about this, we might live for righteousness by whose stripes we are healed. This idea of the healing coming through the one who hung on a tree, it's a a fantastic corollary. Just as the bitter waters of Mara are healed, as it were, the waters are healed from the wood, at least that had fallen from a tree, if not directly pulled from a tree, so it is that our sins are healed by receiving the one who hung on a tree for us. Because the cross, think about it, made of wood, was carved out of a tree. I mean, that's why they would often say, in fact, you'll find when you read the Bible, a lot of times they'll talk about, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Or, or you know, Jesus hung on a tree. They, his, uh, early on in the early church, it was actually meant to be a stigma. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. And your savior that you follow, he died on a tree. I mean, there was this sense of, of deep, cursing that was associated and of course he bore our our cursing that we who were dead might live this is about everything about it that the bitterness becomes life-giving it's a great point to see and and to to look at look back go back to verse 25 it says this Moses cries out to the Lord he throws it into the water and He he takes that wood and it makes the water good to drink. And it was there at Marah that the Lord set before them the following decree as a standard to test their faithfulness to him. He said, look, if you will listen carefully to the voice of the Lord, your God, and do what is right in his sight, obeying his commands, keeping his decrees, then I will not make you suffer any of the diseases I sent on the Egyptians. For I am, and God gives a revelation of himself, I am the Lord who heals you. And this is an awesome thing to think about for a moment because he is still the one who longs to heal. It is so much about what God has come to do. I mean, ultimately, the purpose of him giving himself and entering into this broken experience this sin-impact world of ours where we get to choose things. We are beings of free will, and we live in a world that's filled with choices, and choices have consequences and effects. And even the Bible says even the world itself is broken. And what, what God has done is he's entered into it fully, and oftentimes, he has not answered the questions. He doesn't always give us the answers, but he has given himself the ultimate answer. And in his brokenness, we find something of his willingness to enter into the most painful part of our lives. There's something about that that speaks to us. And even here, as we look about it, we think about it, we're reminded that the Lord, one of the things the Lord wanted Moses to make sure the people understood is that he wanted to be to them the Lord who heals. Spirit, soul, body, we are welcomed. They called Jesus the great physician. We are welcome to invite the Lord to hear a spirit, heal us spiritually, yes, to heal us in our souls, in our minds, in our thoughts, of things of our past, of wounds, of, of habits, of, of issues that we still struggle with greatly that taunt us and, over, and would seek to intimidate and define us. That we, we are welcome to invite Jesus into these places. Lord, touch me. Lord, come into my life. Lord, free me from this of my past. Don't let me be submerged, enslaved, taken, overtaken by things I want to leave behind. Give me grace to move forward into new beginning. the, the one who wants to heal. I would be to you the Lord who heals, spirit, soul, even our bodies. We are invited to ask God to heal. It doesn't mean every time it will happen. In some ways, when we leave this life, that is, there is a sense of ultimate healing to those who believe. But I will say this. We are still invited to welcome God into the broken places of our lives. I would be to you, the Lord who heals. May faith rise in our hearts. The invitation is there to ask. And when we think about that, we are reminded of a couple of things. But before we do that, I want us to look at verse 27. It says that after leaving Marah, the Israelites traveled onto the oasis of Elam. So I want you to just keep these words in your mind. Mara. Bitterness, the oasis of bitterness, bitter water, Elam. They, they they went to another oasis, and this oasis was filled. We're told with a number of things that were outstanding. They they were twelve springs of water, seventy palm trees. They were able to camp beside the water. I mean, Elam represented a a wonderful place. If Mara represents the place of dis, places of disappointment, then Elam represents the place of abundant blessing and fruitfulness. And that leads me to this thought, and we'll start here into this little portion. And is this, that inevitably, listen, and I'm going to say loved ones, because I believe we are loved by God in, in an amazing and an extraordinary way. That inevitably in life there will be times, these Mara moments, these, these times of disappointment, these seasons of disappointment in life, um, these wounding places where the waters are bitter. Uh, I mean it's been now a number of years being involved in in the ministry as a pastor and and um, one of the things that it's just become part of my life is hearing hurt and disappointment and even tragedy and so much a part of of interacting with different people's stories and even sharing with the joy is also at times sharing in mourning together and i've i've come to believe that <clears throat> All of us will have times of disappointment. And our disappointments may not be the same as other people's disappointments. And some disappointments are relatively speaking mild, but they're hard for us because of where we are. And and I don't think think it matters really how it compares up. I I don't think there's any benefit in comparing disappointment. Let's just say that there are some disappointments that are so devastating in their impact that they make it very difficult for us to move forward in a healthy way whether it's it's having to experience a consequence of someone else's decision, whether it has to do with a hurt that was placed into our lives unfairly, whether it has to do with something that we aspired to that didn't come to pass. We felt we were undermined, looked over, looked past, disregarded, underappreciated, taken advantage of. Other times we've experienced trust injuries that have stayed with us now, and this is true, true words here. I can talk to people in their 40s and 50s and and even 60s still living out of a wound in their youth, a trauma that has attempted to define them, these disappointing places when people who shouldn't do it disappoint us, violate our trust. I don't know, whatever. See, the Lord wants to be there, the one who heals. And he can and will. But, you know, one of the things that dawned on me as I was looking at this, and again, I said these Mara moments, these places of overwhelming disappointment. One of the things that dawned on me when you look at it here, it just kind of shows up, is that Israel, one of the reasons they had such a hard time with this is because they had an expectation. You see, for three days, they were moving through the, the wilderness without any water. And that's tough. That's not good. But when they actually saw the oasis of Marah, their idea was, oh, at least we have water now. And then to get there and to think, well, you know, God is good. We have water, right? Moses, you're great. You're wonderful. You let us wear Oh, you, fi- you know, it took you a while to get there, but you got us there. Only to drink the water down and spit it out. This water is undrinkable. What have you done? Now, here's the deal. A lot of times, we may- it's one thing to go through three days of trial. But it's another thing, and here's where I kind of sympathize with them, or at least can relate to them. It's another thing to go, well, you know what? This is just kind of where we're at. But then, when you get to a point where all of a sudden you get your hopes up, and you're going, ah, finally, it's coming to an end, and you let that when we let that in, we uh, we let our guard down, we go, ah, oh, well, we got it now. You know, the waters, this right there, it's there for us. Ah, oh, good, this has come to a point of conclusion. Finally, I can get past this thing. Finally, we get an answer. Finally, we get some water. Finally, the, the wells are there. It's time for us to be refreshed, only to find out that what we thought was an answered prayer or we thought was a breakthrough point, what we thought was a door swinging open, gets flung back in our face, is worse than what it, what it was before because our hopes that we had allowed out are dashed on the rocks or, or in a way vanished like a mirage. In the desert, undrinkable water. Think about that. That is a very difficult thing. The Bible talks about this particularly in one of the Proverbs. In Proverbs thirteen, it says this, and this is a, it's a powerful verse. It says, "It says, hope deferred, look at it, makes a heart sick. But when desire comes, as a tree of life. In other words, when our prayer is answered, hold oh, the joy." Oh, the joy of a dream that comes to pass. Ha, oh, that's great. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. When that moment happens, thank you, Lord. Right, it's great. But it, here's the problem. There are some times where our hope is up. It looks like the breakthrough's there. It looks like the water's there. And all of a sudden we drink and we go, this is not what it seemed. It's no good. It's no good. This is, it was a ruse. It was, a, it was a, why'd you do that? Why did, it, why did I allow myself to get sucked into this? You see, that place Hope deferred makes a heart sick. It's when we let ourselves get open to the possibility of something, and then it doesn't happen. It can take the wind out of our sails. It can, it can be like a shot right there. and just takes our breath away. It, it wears us down. It gives us the inner We can't move. You know, It's so hard when it dawns on us. See, that's what we're talking about. Life can be, and I don't say this haphazardly, or flippantly, but life can be astonishingly cruel and unfair at times, and we're tempted to be angry. But even worse, here's a couple of things that we need to guard against when this happens, our second piece. We need to guard against allowing bitterness, and I selected that word intentionally because Mara is bitter water, bitterness to creep into our soul and into our spirit in these times of incredible disappointment. And we will have them at times. Because in these times when things don't go the way we were hoping, listen, when we get to that water, that bitter water, we must not allow those bitter waters to define us. We must not digest that water. No, don't drink it down. You spit that water out. Spit it out. Don't drink it. It's no good. No life in it. Spit it out. Don't let that bitterness get inside of us. Look, the Bible says this, and there's this powerful, truthful, intense verse in Hebrews. It says this in Hebrews 12, 15. The writer writes this down. He says, Look after each other so that none of you fails to receive the grace of God. In other words, cover each other's back in the Lord. So we always are positioned to receive the grace of God. Take care of one another so we don't develop attitudes that will pull us away from God's ability to help us. But then look at that phrase. And watch out what, for what? That no poisonous, what? Root of bitterness is allowed to grow up and to trouble us. And then in turn, it will corrupt many, defile many, the old version says. The version says it, it talks about this idea that bitterness, which is essentially, I think, connected to anger unresolved, that oftentimes is associated to with a hurt that w- we experienced. That hurt turns into anger, that anger, which can be legitimate, legitimate anger, but then that anger is nurtured over time and not dealt with properly, allowed to just ferment inside of us. It begins to turn into a bitterness, a small seed at first, just a little bit of bitterness. The Bible says it's like a seed, but it doesn't just stay contained. It, it starts to grow up. It starts to grow up, and it starts to just begin to affect every area of my life, and then it doesn't stop there. It begins to shoot out, and it begins to cover and affect other people. My key relationships, the climate in a home, a marriage a, a church it begins to affect things things happen things are connected to a bitter spirit it, it creates a kind of death that, that it brings with it And that thing god wants to make sure look one of the best things we can do when we sense bitterness beginning to penetrate us is to say lord i need you you are the master surgeon please by your grace help me get this out of me lord i it, it, don't let this thing consume me don't let this thing dominate my life it's, you gave me this gift of life not to be defined by the hurts of life do not allow the season of Mara to define my life no bitter water in me free me out Lord I welcome you who is the prince of peace I welcome you who are the one who promised to bring freedom into the dark place you said you set the captive free Lord you have a record of setting your people free set me free O Lord God set me free don't let this thing lodge in me don't let it grow in me and don't let me water it through my words, I mean to speak in an opposite way about it, and that leads me to the second, the, the, the next piece here, which has to do with, and it's our third thought, but it really is the second piece in the, in the progression, and that is be on guard also against a complaining, negative spirit. Uh, one of the things that Israel does here, right, is that their first inclination was is to blame i mean and it's so easy when things aren't going well to start blaming we've talked about this complaining though ah they were such a complaining i mean they would complain do you owe us what's wrong why is it god showing up you know grumble murmur why moses this is you you know what's fascinating or at least noteworthy is that it was god who led israel led moses to lead israel there but they blame moses And this would be, by the way, listen, stay with me, an unfortunate pattern of behavior for this people. These uh, liberated Israelites would continue. This generation would be defined by their ingratitude and quickness to grumble and complain and to drop into negativity, I mean, so fast. Let's put it this way. Uh, their, uh, Their sense of entitlement was a mile wide and their sense of loyalty was about an inch deep. I mean, we're talking about a huge disconnect. You owe us Moses, take care of us Moses. But at the first sign of any trouble, when it got difficult, there was like nothing there. There was no depth. And you know what it would cost them by the time they were done? This generation does not make it into the promised land. They don't make it. Their children do. And just one or two others. But the generation dies in the wilderness unbelief, unbelief and ingratitude and a complaining spirit will kill things. Listen, when it's allowed to dominate our life, it will frustrate God's plans over our lives and it will undermine his intentions and it will reduce our inheritance. We must guard it. We must guard the climate of our homes, of our heart. We must guard the words that come from us. And if we are finding ourselves increasingly inclined towards complaining and negativity, let us guard that and counteract it by choosing to speak words of faith, uh, positive words that come forth from our mouth, focus on the good, be intentional about it, ask God to give us the ability to do it, to refrain from speaking if we have to refrain from speaking, but to speak no foolish thing from our lips. You know, one of the amazing things is when the people that Jesus had the most difficult time with were the Pharisees. And the Pharisees were amazingly critical people they had a, a tendency, an unfortunate tendency, to always fixate on what was wrong. So that Jesus says, look, you guys, I mean, they were very devout, very dedicated, and very honorable in a number of ways. They had a strong sense of religious commitment. But at the same time, they, they would... Focus on things. Like, well, what do your disciples don't wash their hands? Or why are you associating with these people? And Jesus said, You 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 guys, you're so caught up in the in, in your critical spirit. It is offensive to me, and it's you don't even see what it's doing. You cannot see. You learn in men what God is doing in your midst because you focus so much. He says, Look, he goes, You strain at a gnat and you swallow a camel. He says, You know what you do? You you are uh, you, ignorant. You, you, you complain about a, a, a splinter in someone, but then you'd miss the log that's in your own eye. You tithe as you should do, mint and cumin. You're to the nth degree devout, no question about it. But you, and you should have done these things, he says, but you have, re- you have rejected, you have missed, you have ignored. The greater, weightier matters of the law, like mercy and truth and justice. Where is your heart? Where is your compassion? Why can you only see what is wrong? Do you not see what is good, what is right, what God is doing among you? It was a powerful indictment. It's a reminder that Jesus tells us to focus not on what is wrong with things all the time, but to see. And That doesn't mean we, we lack biblical integrity. It doesn't mean that we don't seek to honor what is right in God's eyes. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying we do need to guard against a pharisaical self-righteous spirit that is always, and and, and I say, or or a kind of negativity and critical aspect, there's always focusing, oh, this should be done this way, or why don't they do this, or, you know, know, why why was the music too loud? (laughs) Um, Or, why aren't they doing this for me? And I'm not talking about the church. She should do this. He should do this. They should do this. I can't receive the blessing because, you know, I just don't like it. We miss, we miss, we miss. It's like we give it to bring that That spirit. Okay, I've said enough there. I'll, I'll close with this. The last thing. His mercy is revealed for even when we are undeserving and unfaithful, and they were, and we are. He longs to bless us. Thank you, Lord. That's why we call it grace. Grace means I didn't deserve it. Mercy says, I don't judge. I let you off. Grace says, I not only let you off, but I bless you even more. What you didn't deserve. See, part of me goes, if I'm God, I'm saying the last thing I'm giving you is any water. Because you got a bad attitude. (laughs) Enjoy the bitter water because that's about all you're going to get with that attitude. <laughs> thank, thank the Lord that he doesn't do that to us. Here's the deal. Not only does, you know when the grace of the Lord shows up, not only does he take that bitter water and he turns it around and he says, look, I'll, you know what? Do this. But Lord, they don't deserve Just do it anyway. Bless them. Throw the wood in there. You can drink it. They'll drink it. There, there are times where, listen, the seasons of, listen, there are seasons of disappointment, Mara times, where God's grace is required. But there are also seasons of Elam when the, the, it's just great and it's good and it's wonderful and I love it and I'm thankful and I'm grateful and there's love and laughter and life and relationships are good and it's a good time and it's a good season and at all, I think with the shade, it's just a good place and it's a good place to be and we're grateful and it's easy to be thankful and, and life is good and, and God is good and, and, and I love that place but you know a lot of times that's not real life. There are times where it is and that's a good thing. And no rush to get out of it. But I also tell you this the evil places of life have their own dangers. The Bible says we can get so ble- in our blessing, we can forget the blesser. And there are times where we actually lose our edge because it's so easy for us. And there are times where actually the Mara times of life can actually be a blessing time because they teach us to lean into the grace of God. It's been said that what? Our disappointments are His appointments. He shows up, He's there. And a lot of times it's in those places when the bitter waters are made sweet that we go, God, even from this thing that I hate and despise, I see that you bring good. You are the God of Mara. You are the God of Elam. There is no no place where your goodness cannot come. Teach me this, Lord. How good is our Lord. How faithful. How true. So, Lord, I, I, I ask that you would... Let these truths sit into our heart and soul and my true, sincere heart's desire is that all of us, and include me, would would be faithful to you, not just when it's convenient or when our needs are being met, but that our love for you would not not be so so, uh, flimsy, fragile, fickle, that, that our commitment wavers in seasons of discouragement. We want to we ask you, Lord, to, to help us to shine and to be able to stand strong and to be courageous and to trust you and to live in your grace when things are not going the way we had hoped. And I pray, Lord, that your, your grace would come like a gift in the night that it would flow into our lives, Lord, and we wouldn't even know, but we would say, surely the Lord has been in this place, and I knew it not. Lord, that you would come, and Lord, I pray that you would also, for some of us, that this would be a time, a season, that we would see doors swing open, fly open, that there would be prayers that would be answered, and it would be like a a tree of life to us, Uh, a dream deferred but but coming. And I, I pray that this would be true, and so that you keep doing your work in our lives and through it all, Lord, in it all, around it all, help us to bring our attitudes to places that are in alignment with the way that you said that you have for us to go. So we commit ourselves. And I just pray for the blessing of this, of this closing song, this poem, really, that just so much captures a lot of what we've shared, that it would just sit with us in these closing minutes. So I just pray for, the, for our ending moment. I pray for, that it would be like a prayer to you. And I pray, Lord, also for our time of giving, that as our church seeks to honor you in our tithes and offerings, that we would do so with a grateful and cheerful heart. Just pray for your blessing in these closing minutes. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. God, amen.